dismantling systemic oppression, strengthening local economies, fostering equity and inclusion, cultivating communities for social good. We are motivated to leave the world a more just and compassionate place than we found it. A lofty goal? Maybe. An unreachable goal? Absolutely not. This is Impact Out Loud, the podcast that empowers bold impact for good, powered by Prospera Partners. Your hosts, Vicky Pazaban, Eileen Everett, and Ray Miller, aren't pulling any punches. They are diving deep, unpacking the challenges facing the nonprofit and social sectors, what is and isn't working, and offering systems-level solutions to address the truly transformational leadership that's needed for social enterprises to better their communities. This is the Impact Out Loud podcast. Now here are your hosts. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Impact Out Loud. I'm Vicki Pazabon. We're happy to have you back. Well, let's say hello for a moment and just say hello to each other. It's nice to see you again, Eileen and Ray. How are you? Good. Happy to be here digging into social impact part two as, you know, it's an ever-expanding conversation. <laughs> yeah, it is. I feel like we could spend, I don't know, a few dozen more podcasts just talking about social impact, what it is, how people view it, and what we can do about it. So true. yeah, let's dig into social enterprise and impact what it is, maybe what it isn't. And yeah. Vicki, how cool. about you? How are you? I'm good. I'm ready to get back into it because as I said in part one, I love this topic and I geek out on it. So let's do it. Let's do it. Let's talk about it. So last time we talked about the definitions of social impact and they are many. And we use the examples of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. There are 17 of them. And uh, we'll share a link to that in our podcast webpage. But we want to talk about impact versus outcomes. Right. So Eileen, why don't you lead us through a little bit of that work? All right. So I'm going to jump into talking about three different words, outputs, outcomes and impact, those three things. And like everything, there's people have different definitions for these things. How I love to view it is outputs are measurable, generally quantifiable things. There tends to be a huge focus on outputs and measuring those things. Less focus on outcomes, which are what are the changes, sometimes quantifiable, sometimes not, that we'd love to see in the world from the work that we're doing. And impact being even broader, including both of those things. And I love to view it as more like a guide, guidepost, a North Star. What is what is the bigger vision that we're hoping for? Like the 17 UN sustainability goals are examples to me of impact, like no poverty. That's that's an impact that would be very worthy of us moving towards in society. So an example to maybe help bring this down and not be so intellectual. I'll bring it back to what I'm really familiar with, which is working with youth. So I can say things like, I've worked with 25,000 youth. So that's an output. It's measurable. And so what? You know, right? So what that I've worked right. with thousands of youth, right? Like, who cares? <laughs> Outputs would be, I worked with 25,000 youth through multi-day 
experiential, place-based, outdoor learning and environmental learning programs in hopes of supporting youth and developing their own connections with the outdoors and their own ethics around conserving the environment. So that's moving towards the change that we want to see in the world. And impact would be this larger movement of every kid, every day, every way. So every child in the outdoors on a daily basis in every way. So place-based, experiential, connecting to environmental justice, climate justice, all different ways to interact with the outdoors would be the loftier kind of impact of that. Yeah, thank you. Anything that either of you, yeah, anything that either of you want to add on for how you interpret outputs, outcomes, and impact? I was just going to say that I love also the expanded definition that you worked with in terms of what does it mean to be outdoors? It can be literally your front yard. (laughs) It can be a park in your neighborhood. It can be, you know, even more than that, it can be a trail or going to a nature area, but it doesn't have to be over there, right? We talked about that in in our part one of, especially with climate change, that's always my example. It's too big. It's too lofty. It's over there. I don't know how to handle it, but to talk to kids about being outside, it can literally be what is in your front patio, you know, get them interested in that. That is super local, hyper local, right? So I've always loved that about the work that you've done in the past. And I know we're going to get into some economy stuff today. So before we go smaller. We're going to make a big leap from (laughs) kids in the backyards to economies. Okay, cool. But I'm going to start a little bigger (laughs) because the outputs made me think of how in this country, right, or globally, we think of GDP as the output, right? Like that is the defining factor of how the economy is doing or how a country is doing. But if we think about impact and actually how we are all engaging with the economy, that really doesn't tell the full story. So I don't know, when Mylene was talking about output, I was just thinking about how our economic systems, we get these numbers that tell us one story. But if we start to like pull the layer back, we we see that we're not seeing the full picture. Like even we talk about like unemployment rates, like, oh, it's a low unemployment rate. We're like, wait, like, does that actually count the people who dropped out of the labor force, who are underemployed, who can't afford their lives, things like that. So I know, I know it was a leap. I think I always uh, am in that uh, economic space, especially considering the landscape we're in right now. It's such a important front and center topic. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like outputs wise, that's just like where my head was going right away. Yeah. No, I don't think it was too big of a leap and I appreciate <laughs> you because you're always doing that full circle systems connection for us. And I think that link that Ray just brought up to economy is just this excellent bridge then of introducing the idea of social enterprise. And mm-hmm. so Vicki, can you share with us, what is a social enterprise? What is it? And maybe what isn't it? Well, it's a lot of things, actually. So as we said, social impact definition is a lot of things. Social enterprise is a lot of things. It, it really is, though, the intersection of private business the community service that nonprofits do, right, to fix a social problem. And sometimes government can be involved in the social enterprise. It's sort of the intersection of all three of those things. 
oftentimes a social enterprise is looking to address a certain problem within a societal circumstance. For instance, well, let's stick with the food sector because it is a part of the sector. It's a part of the work that I've done for a really long time. And it's, there are so many examples of this. So oftentimes a food business is looking to grow more farmers in their own community and therefore they want to create a product that sources directly from those farmers. Let's use a lavender farm, for instance, because here in northern New Mexico, we actually have a lot of really lovely lavender farms. There's another alliteration that I love. <laughs> lovely lavender farms. And a lot of products are made from lavender. So there is a social impact to that because what it is doing is sourcing local lavender from those farmers to create a product that is then either shipped out to other wholesale distribution markets or sold here locally at local farmers markets or the grocery store or whatever it is. Everything from lavender-based honey to lavender tea to spices to body products, lots of different things. Is that a social enterprise in and of itself if I have a lavender-based body care business? Not necessarily. However, if that business is really looking at its own impact and how it's sourcing, where that lavender is coming from, are fair wages being paid on the farm? Is there equity built into the labor on the farm? Is the lavender grown organically or sustainably? If they're sourcing from that type of a farm, now we're getting more into the social enterprise realm. And then they sell that product and they're going to market themselves as a business that does that local sourcing, that cares about who grew that lavender, who picked that lavender, who's making the products in their own manufacturing facility. How are they paying sustainable wages? And we get into this other arm that is often unseen that we don't think about as consumers, which is our tax base. A locally based business puts back into the community a higher percentage than a corporation or a franchise business does. How is that possible? Well, because a local business is sourcing locally, so that money is getting recycled. And when it comes to a food-based product, that money can be actually multiplied up to eight times in a community. Other types of businesses, it's usually around four times that the money is multiplied back into the community. Let's stick with food for now. So there's that. They also provide money back into the tax base because they're actually helping to support things like our infrastructure, like our services, for instance, our emergency services, our libraries, fixing potholes, all of our infrastructure problems, you know, all of this kind of thing that goes back into our local tax base. And because they're paying to paying wages locally, more than likely they have a local bookkeeper or a local tax person or a local payroll person rather than outsourcing that to their corporate headquarters. So their money stays in the community and it is multiplied many times over in the community because those people that they're also using for services are then multiplying that money back into the community. Is that a social enterprise? Not necessarily. However, if we think about the impact 
that that money has in a community, then we start thinking of it as a social enterprise. So I like to say that a locally owned independent business is actually a social enterprise. And it helps us to expand our definition of what that means, because it means if I choose a local business over the one next door, uh, perhaps it's just to get my tires changed or rotated at a big box kind of corporate franchise place versus the local guy, the money's going to stay here and support the local community versus going to the corporate headquarters and into bigger profits. I mean, that's a pretty basic example, but I think that when we expand the definition of what local independent means, we can then have greater social impact. I just see us as things start to get more complicated in our world. <laughs> For instance, we just saw the last three years of a pandemic where folks were scrambling to help local businesses as much as they possibly could. Folks were ordering meals and, you know, wanting to pick up and say hello to the person who owned the local restaurant. They wanted those businesses to stay in business. That was local impact. And as things get even more and more complicated, I feel like the answer is social enterprise. And the more we can educate business owners to have that mindset, I feel like the greater impact we will have. So all that is to say <laughs> social enterprise can have a lot of definitions. Even a nonprofit can be a social enterprise for sure. So there's lots of ways to engage in social enterprise. And I'd love to add on to that, right? You're talking about dollars circulating back into the community and that valuable piece of the owner is actually located within the community, right? So they have awareness of what's going on locally. They're invested in what's going on locally. So even beyond those literal dollars through the business, they themselves are based there where in a corporation, that's probably some shell of another company that's elsewhere that really couldn't care less <laughs> about right. what's going on on the ground. Yeah. And it really gives like that ecosystem and systems thinking mindset as well, which I just want to point to like a big change moment for me. And really the first time I met and worked with Vicky was at a local business alliance. And as somebody who was always social justice minded, I was anti-business for a really long time, right? I, I saw businesses <laughs> ruining everything. They're extracting all our resources. They don't care about us. And then I worked for a local business alliance and I was like, whoa, this is like a whole <laughs> other way of engaging with business. And I was in different environments as well. I come from a very corporate place and I do think there is value in New Mexico and how much they really value smaller scale businesses or local businesses. And there's kind of a resistance to fully embracing corporations. And one thing that you said earlier that stuck with me that I wrote a note about of like, I think there's also a myth that small business is only small and it's only granular and it's only going to stay in this one place. And even thinking about that lovely local lavender farm <laughs> you were <laughs> talking about, there's a scalability factor there, right? Like local food isn't just restaurants. It, it can be other products. It can be health products. It can be fragrance. It can be all these other things that actually factor into the things that we use in our daily life. And I think personally, that's something I try to do all the time 
is have that awareness of like, what am I taking in and where does that come from? And knowing that more awareness around that is also making my life experience that much better, right? We know that often is also increasing the quality of what you're engaging with as well, while also knowing you're probably working with a business that has the other ethical values embedded. And that, like you said, it's not a given, but it's just more likely. Yeah. I'm curious around Vicky. I mean, you've been such a steadfast advocate for localism and local economies for, for many years. And, and I know we all try to always embrace the both and too of ensuring that we're not in local versus big box corporations, mm-hmm. all of that. And so my mind is in a place of curiosity. And Vicky, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, I think a lot about Costco as a corporation that has invested a lot in their employees and social responsibility and not just paying a living wage, but a thriving wage and providing good benefits for their employees and um, thinking about sustainability efforts in a variety of ways. So my question is, can a corporation be a social enterprise? Ah, good question. <laughs> so uh, there is a whole evaluation system for corporations, which is more around corporate social responsibility, which is what I would categorize them as, as being good corporate citizens because of what they're doing. And the thing that I do like about Costco is that they have done a great job of working with local food businesses in their communities to help them mentor them, nurture them, and grow their businesses to be a provider to Costco and to sell directly to Costco. So you will see, I'm guessing I don't shop at Costco because it's not in my radius. Yeah. <laughs> it's, not, it's, not, it's just not in my field of where I shop. And I'm, you know, I'm one person. So it's hard for me to buy that much stuff all at once. But you will see there's sort of regional distribution systems for corporations like Costco. I mean, Walmart does this too, but you will see a regional food from, let's say, even Colorado, which is here in, in Albuquerque, Costco. And they will work with a region, the, the Rocky Mountain region west, for instance, and that's probably five or six states that they will put all this food in and it's considered local. I'm using air quotes. I'm sorry. <laughs> you too can see me. So they will call it local because it's Mountain West, which is another interesting conversation that I had recently about what is our local food system and what is local versus out of state. And as a state, New Mexico, we can't survive just on local food. If, if everything that we consumed was grown here, we wouldn't survive. First off, we don't have enough farmers. This average acreage of a farm in New Mexico is under two acres. They can't produce enough food. And our growing season for the northern half of the state is really only 16 weeks. The southern half of the state is even hotter and higher desert and has major water issues. And a lot of that is growing for corporate commodities. They're growing pecans. They're growing much larger quantities of chili in the southern part of the state. So if we were to rely on the local food production just for our own state, we wouldn't survive. Just pinyons, chilies, and pecans. (laughs) 
right? Yeah. How do we survive on that? We'd have really high vitamin C intake, which would be great. <laughs> so we need to think about what is a regional system and how does that impact growers in other places? How does it impact us here? How can we source from better growers in other regions? How is it more of an exchange rather than an extraction of product? And to think in ways that is not purest localism. I want to just say those words. Purest localism is going to not help us <laughs> in any way. It's too stringent. There's just no way we could do it. That's certainly in the food system for sure. And that Costco example, I feel like is such a great example. I'm always saying like I'm doing that micro macro. And as we've talked about before, we can't be totally like in a utopia or altruistic. There's this like working towards what works and right. right. Like you could criticize Costco for encouraging like mass consumption and there's still large brands in there and they use plastic and like, is it the best model? But to Eileen's point, they do pay better than most places right. and they have this interrogation and they're doing what they can to do the best service for the communities they're in and have that tax base. So I feel like just bringing that in as we know like none of these things are a quick fix or there's like one answer or one way that this shows up in the world. And I love that as an example of like what we're working towards. And sometimes we do need larger businesses. So there's like a range, a range there and a flexibility right. there. Well, I want to talk about socks and underwear for a moment, if we can. <laughs> because... can. Can I just say one quick thing about food yeah. before we move on from food? Sure. <laughs> just because I don't want to lose this. Yeah, to, onto socks and underwear. This is, a, this is a bridge to get there. Maybe, maybe not. I also want to name, too, the social impact piece of... I, I'm really appreciative, Vicki, of how you brought up, like, purist localism and to also name the privilege and being able to afford yes. local food. And I know, again, Vicki, you've been the steadfast advocate of being able to link people who are in poverty in a variety of ways to local food and make it way more accessible. And there always needs to be more work in that area. But I think it is also important as we think of all the pieces of social impact to not lose this piece of those of us who have had the privilege because we have more wealth to be able to afford local food, it's easy to lose the perspective that a lot of people here in New Mexico don't. Right, right. I used don't to have talk those about, financial resources too. Right. I used to talk about the price of a tomato. The, the tomato that you're buying in the grocery store that is perfectly round and red and slices up perfectly to fit on your hamburger bun is grown specifically to do that. Yep. And it is sold to restaurants specifically to fit perfectly on a round hamburger bun. <laughs> and it tastes like cardboard, mm -hmm. right? And it's grown. Mealy water. It's oh, terrible. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> but a local tomato is going to cost you $3 a pound mm -hmm. because most likely that farmer is paying the wages of folks locally probably higher than what is being paid through a corporate farm, obviously. And that tomato grown locally is not subsidized. The subsidization is yeah. huge. Right, the corporate yeah. subsidization. And that tomato that you get at the grocery store has traveled hundreds of miles to get to you and ripened in a truck. 
and the local tomato traveled probably on average, probably 20 to 50 miles to get to you at a farmer's market or is at your local co-op or at a local restaurant, for instance. So there are costs embedded in growing a tomato that we don't see because we're so used to a subsidized corporate tomato at the grocery store. Right. The corporate tomato is probably actually like three times more expensive. It's just covered by the government. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. But I know we don't have much time left and we need to get to socks. <laughs> well, this is the same problem, right? Is that I used to get this thing all the time of like, well, where do you expect me to buy my socks and underwear at a local store? We don't have general stores like we used to. We don't have, you know, it's not the 1800s where the local everyone's darning their socks. And, I was going to say and, the local seamstress is making socks and selling them at the local general store. Like we don't have that happening anymore. I get it. You need to buy your staple products, your undergarments in probably a big box store. However, there are ways to source your own products in a way that can have greater impact greater social impact. And if you have the privilege to be able to do that, we encourage you to do that. There are shoe companies, underwear, socks companies, you name it, who do good in the world. I mean, you know, Tom's of Maine, for instance, always comes to mind. Their shoes are not inexpensive, but they also have a one-for-one program where they give a pair of shoes for every pair that they've sold. They've given millions and millions of shoes to those who need them. That is a social enterprise model. There are many of those that are out there. I think Bombas does it too for their socks. They give socks to those in need. So there's lots of examples of how to buy socks and underwear in a more sustainable way. And just throwing <laughs> and if, out there's companies that are using like recycled plastics to make sure. textiles or absolutely. You know, whatever. Yes, absolutely. So I want to just leave us with the idea that expand the definition of social enterprise, including what a locally owned independent business can do and why it is impactful for your community. And you get to social impact. Those are yep. my thoughts. And I'll, I'll, maybe my closing thought is around how I think that's more important than ever. We've seen that some businesses were supported through the pandemic, but a lot were severely impacted. Like you were saying before, there was a lot of rallying around small businesses in 2020, but that has really tapered off in a lot of ways in the last few years. And we've seen small businesses really hurting, closing. And to that same point, like these can be like the lifeblood of our communities and most invested in our communities. So I feel like that's just like my shout out to remember when you're making that purchasing choice to maybe take that like few more minutes or seconds to think about, is there a way I could be doing this better? That doesn't like financially cripple you, of course, but just keeping that in the back of your mind. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Ray. So we have a what the fuck or an aha moment. Shall we go there, Eileen? Yeah, I want to bring in one of our co-facilitators, Courtney Andar, I'm like channeling him, thinking about him right now. And he he does such an amazing job talking about mindfulness. And so I feel like that's my aha is that awareness around how do we bring mindfulness in as consumers and to our purchasing decisions. And that there isn't, how do we not get stuck in the binary? 
Mm -hmm. right? How do we be open and think about our motivation and choices? So there's not, it's not an easy, quick thing, but I think it's just mindfulness around purchasing. Mm -hmm. Yep. How about you two? And maybe I'll just build off of that, of just being like compassionate with yourself when making those decisions, knowing that we do live in a country that has incentivized corporations in a lot of ways. We know it's a corporate welfare country in a lot of ways. So your easiest choice will be the big boxes most of the time. And if that's what you have to do, don't like beat yourself up about it. I think a theme through all of our work is rigidity isn't going to get us there. It's just like that intentionality. Yeah. Thanks for that, Ray. (laughs) Mine is WTF with the mealy water tomato. (laughs) I'm just going to leave it there. Why even put it on your plate? (laughs) It's so terrible. (laughs) Thank you both so much. I'm going to go eat a real tomato, although it is winter. So no, I'm not going to go eat a tomato. Thank you both so much. I appreciate you. And we'll see you next time on Impact Out Loud. Thank you for listening to the Impact Out Loud podcast, the podcast that empowers bold impact for good, powered by Prospera Partners. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Impact Out Loud wherever you get your podcasts and follow Prospera Partners on your favorite social media. If you are inspired to make community-based solutions and systems change, Prospera Partners offers workshops and programs that are open to all. For more information, visit prosperapartners.org. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, be well and do good.